the monetary revolution. Introduction. Although the masters make the rules for the wise men and the fools, for them that must obey authority, that they do not respect in any degree, who despise their jobs, their destinies, speak jealously of them that are free. Bob Dylan, It's All Right Ma, 1965. The start of a monetary revolution is upon us. In the grander schemes of revolutions, a monetary revolution might not be as messy as some previous revolutions. But we should remember that revolutions are not always political in nature. Most revolutions throughout history are actually technological in nature. These revolutions can result in violence or peace, but they are always disruptive and life-changing. Like all revolutions, a monetary revolution occurs when the monetary status quo reaches breaking point and something doesn't change or alter, but definitively breaks. So what is money? Money is merely an abstraction to represent the relationship in society between time and value. Money, therefore, is hugely important in life. It might be the root of all evil, but it is also at the root of all prosperity. Money allows value in society to move around to where it is most needed. If society needs food, money will go towards farmers who produce food and incentivize others to make food. Money, as a concept, is not always talked about, and that is probably for the best. Because as this series goes through the history of money and its use in society, we will see that money is not as simple as we first think it is. Money's value can shift. Money can be manipulated. Money can be replicated and forged. Money can also be stolen or seized. So, what is a monetary revolution? Well, it is when the current monetary order, the system of government money we use today, starts to break down. When this happens, there are two things that could result. Reform or revolution. In many countries where a monetary order was broken, it resulted in revolution. This doesn't mean it was always a monetary revolution. Sometimes it could become a political revolution. The 1920s hyperinflation in Germany is still one of the primary causes for the rise of the Nazi party. In Latin America, the change in the monetary order in the 1970s caused mass poverty and led to the seizure of power by generals across the continent. Yet, the revolution could also be more positive. It could be a pure technological revolution 
that actually solves a problem rather than causes it. The use of cryptocurrencies and associated blockchain technology could provide this technological revolution to prevent the current monetary order from imploding on itself and causing a political revolution. What this change will look like is yet to be seen, but we do know something for sure. When something breaks, change will have to come. Another economic collapse or monetary crisis could lead to two things. Political intransigence leading to mass civil unrest and a resulting political revolution. Or it could lead to a move away from government-backed monetary systems as people subvert state power more subtly and more effectively. Decentralised but digital and permanent. Bitcoin is the first currency built on the world's first blockchain. It is perhaps the most valuable thing yet created by man. What gives Bitcoin value? It is the technology inside the programming of Bitcoin that gives it value. Just like every other money in history, it is the use of its technology that gives it value. Bitcoin is not something created to make money, it is money. It is the world's first mathematically perfect supply and demand currency model. It is highly decentralized compared to its competitors. And in this new hyper-digital world, it is something with far more stability and permanence compared to the abstractions like the nation-state, central banks and large corporations. Bitcoin is a medium of exchange that truly complements and supports bottom-up free market capitalism, empowering mankind to use a currency that is trustworthy. With the inherent models of stability and decentralization it uses to cut out the middleman. Bitcoin is the first perfectly sound money created by man. Our inalienable right to have a currency with true value and true stability in its purchasing power will become clearer and clearer to those who use Bitcoin and do so for the long term. One Bitcoin is one Bitcoin, and it will always be one Bitcoin. One pound or one dollar is not always a pound or a dollar. A pound has different values all around the world. It can also be printed by the central bank on a massive scale. Banks even now are threatening customers with negative interest rates on their deposits in effect taking money away from people. Money in bank accounts can easily be seized by governments and easily monitored. And then there's that kicker to all fiat currencies, the hidden tax called inflation. Bitcoin is not perfect. It is also not a metonym for all cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin has flaws and benefits, like all monies and all cryptocurrencies. But as the first cryptocurrency, it will see its use narrow over time 
and it will be first in many areas. Its use in the future will be limited to moving large amounts of value around. Other coins in the coming crypto revolution will take over with faster and quicker payments, more complex blockchains, more privacy and less energy use, or perhaps a more stable form of value. These are not flaws of Bitcoin, but features of it. What Bitcoin does do is represent a perfect store of value, and this is how it will largely be used. Other coins, and it's still too early to tell which ones, will arise to complement Bitcoin and solve its flaws. But Bitcoin will be at the tip of the monetary revolution. It has the first mover advantage. So let's go back to basics. What is money in the first place? Where does it come from? Money to represent value has a long history, with a few types of proto-monies stretching back tens of thousands of years. But the real place to start is the Neolithic Revolution, sometimes called the Agricultural Revolution or Farming Revolution which unfolded around 12,000 years ago. The Neolithic Revolution resulted in the end of hunter-gathering and the starting of settled farming civilizations. Humans gave up their previous lifestyles to settle down near farms and live from crops like wheat. Philosophers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Yuval Noah Harari have claimed this was a bad step for humanity. It resulted in population sizes booming, but the quality of nutrition going down, as there was increasing dietary reliance on bread for calories, rather than the meat and berries and nuts that had gone before. For the first time, humans could complain about how many carbs they were eating. The lack of protein in diets meant humans physically shrunk and became weaker. Why would they accept this trade-off? Well, the invention of farming led to easier sources of calories. The prospect of food that was easy to eat, cheap and tasty, was worth far more than the harder to source meats. Around this time, the population of the earth had increased as temperatures soared and the planet warmed and became more fertile. But soon, this population boom led to more and more people going after increasingly fewer resources. A different source of calorie was therefore needed to be sourced. The invention of bread actually preceded the farming revolution. And although we can't be sure, the farming revolution could have been started to increase the amount of bread in production, as more and more bread would have been needed for more and more people. These magicians, and that's what they would have looked like, who could bake bread from crops, would have been able to exchange their bread for what they needed. The most fertile areas would have seen people conglomerate around them in order to get better access to bread. The Fertile Crescent was so fertile that it allowed more bread to be produced than could be consumed. As knowledge of farming increased, 
it allowed those who studied proto-agronomy to understand things like seasons and soils, and how to plant and harvest more and more wheat to increase the amount of bread in society. Farming societies led to the creation of stable societies. So desired were these areas, like a Manhattan or London of today, that people flocked to move to them, and man started to learn to live in communities larger than 150 people or so. These conglomeration effects resulted in the need to form defences, for example, to stop your fields from invaders wanting to plunder and loot. This is the origin of war. This increasing coordination of efforts by people in society resulted in increased specialisations of labour, as more and more wealth in the form of food created genuine surpluses of resources. This, in effect, is what wealth still is. The surplus of resources. It is a resource you don't need right now in order to survive, and so can store. Today, this is done in cash, stocks and shares, housing, and even strange things like baseball or Pokemon cards. A store of value is basically anything you don't need right now to survive. In the earliest farming communities, power would have become rooted in the man who gained control of the excess surplus, especially if they had control of it over the winter months. These men, and they were almost all men, were either priests, elders of society, despots, or even the people themselves in early proto-democracies. The nature of this podcast is to take a broad look at history, and so if we jump forward from the Neolithic Revolution some 11,850 years, another similarly revolutionary event happened that led another great mass human revolution, as profound as the Neolithic one before it. Today we call it the Industrial Revolution. This revolution has been far better charted by history and evidence. Though like the Neolithic revolution before it, much of it is still largely a mystery. There is no mystery as to where it happened, but to why it happened, and why it happened where it did. In short, what we know is that by the early 1700s, Britain was about as wealthy as it was possible for a non-industrial country to be. Britain was a merchant democracy, benefiting from trade with the continent and the new world. Britain, for a hundred years, had become increasingly wealthy, and it was starting to overtake much of Europe, who was still living in the fallout of political and religious fracturing. Britain's population size and wealth began booming around this point. Britain, long an island of immigration, became an island of emigration as people all over the island moved to the new world in search of more religious freedoms and economic prosperity. Despite this emigration, Britain's population continued to boom. But then, miraculously, in the middle of the 18th century, so did its agricultural produce. New techniques were developed at home. 
but there was also the importing of certain ideas and items. Up until this point, windmills were about as mechanised as agriculture got in pre-industrial times. British windmills started to be introduced in the 8th century AD and were scattered across much of East Anglia. They were a Dutch import to grind wheat into flour. It shows the lack of industrial production that the most mechanised piece of technology in this time in Britain was over 1,000 years old. This mechanisation via wind and water in the case of water wheels could only be supported in wealthier pre-industrial economies. But in Britain, a rich area of minerals is had another very exploitable energy source in coal. Britain's wealth gave time for lots of clever tinkerers and engineers to start looking at the increasingly proficient scientific output in the world and starting to put two and two together. By making new and old things work together in ingenious ways, coupled with a free and open internal market, it resulted in a number of small innovations that by themselves led to a revolution. Led by a mix of aristocrats, merchants, farmers and innovators, British farms introduced better crop rotation. They brought over Dutch ploughs, so fields could be pulled with fewer oxen and horses. While around this time it also saw improved transport infrastructure to move goods around. Aristocrats too got very interested and very good at the selective breeding of animals. While the increasing profits allowed the best farms to increase their size and buy the old unproductive farms. Britain's increased farming productivity meant that workers became rapidly less needed for farming. This had been the bedrock of society for thousands of years. People harvested what food they needed to survive. In this new world, people put out of work by this process were largely the farmers in the rural areas of Britain, and so they moved to the cities to look for work en masse. This took place at a time when some of these new productivity and efficiency gains from farming were starting to be implemented in the factories now popping up across the north of England. Britain's aristocrats were increasingly looking at better ways to make money. There was little romanticisation of the land, as the British aristocracy put farmers out of work, dug huge canals through their land and mined the coal underneath their land to make as much money as possible. Capitalism, the idea that the allocation of human labour and enterprise is best left to the open market, had been the primary function of the state of Britain for nearly 200 years. A move to capitalism amongst the aristocracy came from the very top of English society. As Queen Elizabeth realised England was losing out to Spain, Portugal, and even most terrifyingly of all, France. Their gains from the New World were huge, as the Spanish crown was bringing back huge amounts of gold and silver 
from the New World. Queen Elizabeth therefore issued privateers, legal pirates, to try and loot this bounty and bring it back to Britain. Britain was an island nation and proved adept at this form of proxy financial naval warfare. Britain was unique in having always had a capitalist heart. Located in the city of London, a one mile big separate city inside what we now call today London. It had been a trading hub at the heart of the River Thames since pre-Roman times, and such was its guaranteed liberty that it had the promise of liberty written into common law, having been guaranteed by the Crown in Magna Carta. Even today, the freedom and liberty of the City of London is still one of only three parts of Magna Carta still on the statute books in Britain. The City of London, the capitalist heart of Britain, and the Crown went into business, promising to share this wealth from this privateering. It was a hugely successful enterprise. As an island nation, Britain's superior naval skills showed across the oceans. New wealth suddenly entered Britain, and one man stood above all the others in terms of money and wealth. Sir Thomas Gresham. He had learned how to make money in that great merchant city of Amsterdam, which in turn had learnt it from Venice and Genoa. State-sponsored capitalism was greatly profitable for all, he realised. Gresham was a favourite of the crown since he had entertained Elizabeth at his Osterley house in Middlesex. The Queen was greatly impressed by his house, and greatly was enjoying his company, but opined that his court was too large and needed a divide. To show his wealth, Gresham sent for workmen from London to build a wall overnight. The next morning, the Queen saw the wall and was hugely impressed by the power of Gresham. Over the next 12 years, she often went to stay at Osterley House. In 1566, Gresham built, modelled on the Antwerp one, a London Bourse or Stock Exchange. In 1571, the Queen named it the Royal Exchange and granted it numerous trading licences. Gresham was successful and capitalism was now state-sponsored and state-backed. Yet Gresham was more than a capitalist tyrant. It was he who persuaded the Queen, who had allowed the currency to be debased through impurities in the silver coinage to restore it to its original value. He argued for sound money. So, we skip ahead 200 years or so, back to the pre-industrial 1750s Britain. And if we remember where we left the economy of Britain at this point of inflection, where farmers were leaving the rural areas and moving to the cities to look for jobs. Britain was an island nation and couldn't solve new problems by marching into newly conquered land. Remember, 
Many were already leaving through emigration to the colonies, and Britain's population was still booming. These workers needed jobs. The base of society for the past 12,000 years, that of most people working in farms, had gone. These people needed jobs, so what could be done in Britain? The same technology that put these workers out of farming jobs were applied to other parts of the economy. Jobs were created, not in farming, but in the new industries where huge amounts of cheap materials could be made and exported. However, rather than a state-led capitalist approach, this new revolution was primarily focused on the cities in the north of England that first developed these new manufacturing techniques. Britain had been so wealthy that the newest equipment, like Thomas Newcomb's steam engine, was already being used across the country. People could see the value of techniques to produce more with less, especially in using steam power as coal prices became cheaper and cheaper. In Manchester, for example, as a result of the Bridgewater Canal built in 1760, coal could be transported from a coal mine to Manchester via the waterways. Water is the cheapest form of transport, and so this coal was cheaper than anywhere else in the country. This resulted in canals springing up across Britain, while the use of coal precipitated a better steam engine made by James Watt, as more and more products became made for less and less. An industrial revolution needed to happen in Britain. If it wasn't for technological revolution, increasing the wealth of the population and economic output, then the increasing population and lack of political representation could have resulted in political revolution. We can see what could have happened to Britain had it not undergone this technological revolution. A few decades later, in the 1780s and 1790s, Another revolution, this time in France, was launching. This was not a technological revolution, but a political one. France was more centralised than Britain, but they could be seen as mirror images in many ways. Perhaps why the two countries have remained the best of frenemies for over 1,000 years. The power of the Bourbon monarchy had become too highly centralised, and their decades, or perhaps centuries of misrule, compared to the booming British, was making France fall behind. A tale of two countries. This isn't to say that France wasn't benefiting from the slow diffusion of wealth and trade. The artisanal classes in France were increasingly moving into cities and away from the peasants, both in terms of where they lived and moving away intellectually. They saw themselves as somewhere between the peasantry and the aristocracy. They were a fourth estate of people with no say in society. France, and particularly Paris, was reaching breaking point. Increasingly worse blunders and policy missteps 
preceded the years leading up to 1789. But then the crucial stability of society broke when a poor harvest across France caused grain prices to soar. Parisian society exploded into outright revolution in one of the most famous and consequential events in human history, the storming of the Bastille. So where does this industrial and political revolution fit in with this monetary revolution? Well, that's what this series is about. A slowly unfolding revolution is beginning to take shape. In some ways, this is merely a new piece of technology appearing to disrupt the market. But I think this underplays it somewhat. The current monetary system of government-backed and government-issued money is becoming so broke that a great divergence is about to take place. Those countries that back decentralised sound money will go down the British path of economic revolution. Those that ban decentralised currencies will see themselves go down the path of France and towards political revolution. This financial, Bitcoin or monetary revolution has had a similar start to other historical revolutions in history. Our current money system has been manipulated for so long and all the while capital has been so misallocated by governments away from productive innovations and towards things like welfare spending in order to keep the people happy and them in power. The lack of new technological innovations is because governments have manipulated and debased their currencies to fund predominantly welfare spending. In short, our perpetual growth model is starting to fail as technological progress and therefore economic growth has slowed down. Our current monetary system is increasingly old-fashioned for an internet age and is reaching breaking point. Rich countries have devalued and manipulated their currencies for too long. Today, jobs that provide little pay lots, while valuable jobs are underpaid relative to previous decades, as currency manipulation has infected economies all across the world. The essential worker crisis of early 2020, as we all stayed at home due to lockdown, showed just who needed to go to work and who didn't. Those who did need to work almost certainly weren't getting paid the relative value and importance of their labour, while jobs like derivative traders or financial consultants who could work from home got paid well above their relative importance of their labour, as government money over the decades has been manipulated to support the financialization of economies in the West rather than increasing industrialization. The supermarket worker, the plumber, the people who fix telecommunications issues should be under no illusions that the value of their labour has been reduced over a period of decades by inflation, all of this inflation caused by government policy.
In effect, the very money we use, the pounds, the dollars, the euros, whatever, are losing their value day by day, and have been for decades. Money is now political, with governments and central banks allocating money to whatever areas they like. Whether this be propping up housing markets, stock markets, defence and aerospace industries. And, in the European Union's case, using money to prop up entire countries. This doesn't liberate people, but enslave them to government money. The way the central bankers get away with this is by calling it liquidity, and, they say, by adding liquidity into the economy. This simply just means printing money and adding it into the economy by giving it to banks to prop up unproductive loans, further disorienting the economy. However, crucially for politicians, it keeps the banking and property sectors afloat. This creation of fake money trickles down to the economy and causes genuine inflation on anything other than cash. Housing, land, stock market prices all soar, while all the free money means consumer credit drops to record low interest rates, creating a highly consumerist society with an incentive to borrow, rather than save. The artificial pumping up of the economy to allow for easy corporate borrowing at cheap interest rates allows unprofitable companies to survive. In effect, money in the form of credit has been manipulated to go to areas where there is no economic growth. Economic growth in the West, in the past 12 years or so, has been down almost solely to rising populations and the increasing financialization of economies, which relies on the benefits of globalization. This is not an economic model for most, merely a bandage over problems. Western inability for real economic progress has been down to increasing government allocation of resources, which damages the economy and the careful equilibrium between wages, house prices and rent and consumer spending. So taking all this into account, in my opinion, what Bitcoin represents is a means to solve many of these problems. When people say Bitcoin is only a solution looking for a problem, or they ask what problem Bitcoin solves, the reply should be simple. It solves our broken monetary system and fixes the economy. The 2008 financial crisis completely gutted economies that relied on financial services as they realised artificially inflating house prices through cheap debt was not a good idea. However, in the decades since, they've tried another approach, inflating house prices through quantitative easing. Quantitative easing is the duplication and creation of artificial money by central banks, and it's as bad as it sounds. QE is slightly different all over the world, but in effect it is printing money to buy corporate and bank bonds and to recapitalise troubled financial industries. We know the banks today are a joke when we look at the interest rates for savings. They are at rock bottom 
and have been for a long time. This is because bank loans aren't really bringing in many returns. Interest rates are low because there is no economic growth. Today, anything seen as the possible future, where there is seen to be the possibility of future growth, leads to a hugely inflated valuation. It doesn't matter if this company makes a profit or not. It doesn't even matter over a 10-year period if they don't make profits, as long as the illusion of future profits are still there. Airbnb, Uber, Tesla may in future be hugely profitable, but right now they don't make profits. The amount of capital allocated to unprofitable companies should be a warning sign. Capital being allocated to unprofitable companies causes problems to whole parts of the economy. As cash becomes so unwanted, people are happy to store their wealth in, say, Tesla stocks rather than cash. This means it's not profit driving the economy, as should happen, but debt. There are no sources of easy profits, so the easiest source of money is bank credit. The amount of debt in the world is always increasing. This does not just happen in isolation. It is bad for the economy. Debt results in actual money creation, which causes inflation. If a bank lends you £250,000 to buy a house, that's genuine money that's put into the economy. This system of easier credit started in the 1970s, when Richard Nixon turned off the trade from dollars to gold. The real value of certain things in the economy and the value of the dollar began to diverge. Labour's value has slumped in relative terms since 1971, while house prices have soared. This leads, over time, to the relationship between economic productivity and wages diverging, as wages, paid in cash, has become devalued through such easy credit creation and now, of course, quantitative easing. Currency devaluation is one of the worst things a government can do to its people. 60 years ago, a 1950s American ideal was achievable because of stronger wages, as the money was less manipulated under sounder money systems. A single breadwinner could live in the West and earn enough to buy a house, support several kids, a wife, and have two cars. Yet, with the decreasing purchasing power of wages, Today, a two-parent household working with good middle-class jobs struggle to pay for the same house and have the same standard of living. That, to me, doesn't sound like progress. The idea that a single worker can afford a house today in the West is seen as a long shot for most. Houses and assets have inflated, while labour's value has deflated. This all started with the negation of sound money. Economist Richard Werner is perhaps the best critic of the current financial system and modern banking. He was the economist who invented the concept of a quantitative easing, but has argued QE has largely been misspent by central banks.
QE has been used to fund speculation and accelerate deindustrialization, rather than the other way around. Rather than investing this cheap money to increase investments in new industries and new infrastructure on a large scale, it has continued to pump the decline of the heartlands of both Britain and America by attempting to turn, say, the Midwest of the United States or the North of England away from manufacturing and towards the service sector. High-tech manufacturing has moved out of the West and to the East. Part of this decline in manufacturing has been because of a slowing down in technological progress, but also a longer-term decline in innovations and inventions, which are normally powered by a prosperous middle class who rely on the benefits of an industrialised workforce. The decline of money affects those people who gain the most from wages. The poor do often tend to stay poor, unfortunately, and the rich will always be rich. But the two groups that are most dependent on strong wages are those who often drive business innovation and disruptive innovation. They have been the most hollowed out financially by the rise of government money. To this monetary problem, Bitcoin is the answer. Bitcoin allows a move away from the current financial system to an alternative financial system. The joke, what do you call alternative medicine that works, medicine, makes me think of the current financial system. The alternative financial ecosystem may be called alternative, but as soon as it proves it works, it will be the financial system. You should never feel sorry for the bankers that will lose their jobs as the world begins to shift. The move to Bitcoin will change what types of banking are needed, and it will move banking again towards a more respectable profession, not a profession that makes you think you're going to lose all your money. Many bankers deserve what is coming to them. Everything you are told about banks and banking are lies. For example, the very basis of our relationship with a bank is built on a lie. We are told banks make money by taking deposits from customers and using these deposits to lend to businesses and people wanting mortgages. This is incorrect. You don't deposit anything with a bank. That implies you have custody over your money. If that was the case, why does Britain have deposit insurance guaranteed by the government? Because it's not actually your money. Take a closer look at a bank statement. Some of them might even tell you the truth. What you are actually doing is crediting the bank with your money and they will repay you your money on demand of it. In effect, you are loaning the banks your money. Banks do not even need to reallocate this money like we think they do. They don't need this money to loan it out to other people. This is what we've got to remember throughout this series. We can talk about central banks printing money all we like, but the real sinners are the corporate banks who can literally create money out of thin air to loan. When a bank loans you money, they press a button and they magically create that money to loan to you without ever needing to reallocate it from other depositors. 
They aren't in the process of reallocating capital like many think they do, and they have even less public oversight than the central banks. Banks creating money via credit creation is 97% of all money not created by central banks. Banks can literally create money out of thin air and lend it to you. If you're literally creating money out of thin air, from the bank's point of view, it's in their interest to loan money to you with things attached. Say, for example, you go for a mortgage. The bank can literally press a button to create the money to loan it to you. Then say you pay off the mortgage for 10 years, and then you lose your job, and you can't pay back the rest. The bank will repossess the house. For nothing, they've gotten 10 years of mortgage payments and a house they can sell on. It's all a big scam. Not only is it a scam, it's having massive impacts on the macroeconomic outlook of countries using this type of banking, like Britain and America. What this means is banks are able to create loans out of nothing, and therefore there is no incentive for banks to issue productive debt. Productive debts are those that in theory can pay back long-term returns on loans. Doing this effectively would mean banks would have to fund new technological innovations, which they simply don't want to do. It's too risky and it might not work. Instead, banks focus on issuing short-term and therefore easier profits from loans. This has been the drive since 2008, which has created a massive consumerist culture. Take a walk down a high street. The high street in Britain, for example, is littered with examples of what cheap credit has done. In the past 10 to 20 years, cheap debt has helped ramp up mildly profitable new chain restaurants and new coffee shops. Banks have helped fund lots of these new businesses through cheap debt. It was an ability to see a little bit of profit that these chains and franchises could provide wrapped up in an easy scalable business that creates a little bit of profit. Meaning the banks just simply jumped on these ideas and pumped a huge amount of debts into scaling up these sectors, which led to their huge growth. In the lockdown-inspired recession, many of these chains have now closed down showing just how weak their finances were. Productive bank lending in the economy would focus on new industries that provide high wages in highly profitable new areas. But generations of politicians and bankers wanted the easier option, and to base their economy on credit creation and money printing. This has been helped somewhat by globalisation opening up a huge labour and consumer market to help drive the world economy and keep prices low at home. This has further disoriented markets across the world. Without deep structural changes in the economy that are unlikely to ever go far enough, there may be no change to this cycle of debt and bust. However, this is where I'm optimistic about the future and this new revolution which I think can get us out of this mess. 
The Anglo-Saxon economies of Britain and America in particular have always found ways to get themselves out of any issue. They have always gone with the solution to innovate themselves out of a problem. As we saw earlier, the obsession with money that overwhelmed Britain since the 1570s when Britain became a merchant nation under Elizabeth I was key in helping to cement the Industrial Revolution. France, which never and still doesn't truly embrace free market capitalism, is faced with constant and seemingly never-ending political revolution, rather than technological ones. This obsession with capitalism has been Britain's success, and later America's success. Money makes the world go round, and inventions and innovations make the most money. Any problem faced by Britain and America has been solved by innovation. The UK's and USA's success over the past few hundred years has been due to its ability to innovate its way out of trouble. Innovation in the financial, military, transportation, legal and political fields means that any narrow issue can be solved and the broader system of society continues, however many other flaws it might have. As we look at the start of 2021, there are many crises in the world, but none as pervasive, all-consuming and unknown as our looming monetary crisis. The problem is simpler than you might think. It all starts with what we talked about before, low-performing debt supporting low-performing debt. The continuation of this has not resulted in reforms of banking, but supporting a broken system through the debasement of the currency. This is the reason for the lack of real economic growth in recent years, especially since the financial crisis. It is why so many feel that in the future they might be poorer than their parents. No profits in the economy means no interest rates, no real incentive to save, and no reinvestment in the economy from the young. These problems have not gone unnoticed by the markets. Now, anything that looks like the future is where capital moves to. Almost all tech companies are grossly overvalued compared to their profits. It's the promise that Airbnb or Uber might move from a growth company to a profit company that results in their massive overvaluations. People have judged the current economic situation to be so negative that merely the promise of future profits has driven Tesla to a price-earnings ratio of over 1,000 to 1. In good economic times, such the Victorian era in Britain, or in the United States in the 1950s, the price-earnings ratio for a company could be low as 10 to 1. If we accept all of this is true, what does it mean for us in early 2021? Well, the coronavirus has changed everything. People aren't going out anymore. Many already underperforming loans and investments have only gotten worse as commercial and office property prices have collapsed. To underwrite these poorly performing loans, once again, the central banks have stepped in, creating more money out of nothing to support the banks. Bad and unproductive debts proliferate and nobody is punished for it.
We inherently think money should be pure and untainted, and we should be right to think that. We're very wary of fake money. Nobody wants to receive counterfeit money. Even if you come back from Scotland to England with a Scottish paper note and try and spend it in England, there's a good chance it'll be rejected, even though it's legal tender. People are wary of this money, but they don't seem to mind banks digitally and artificially creating money. Money, whatever it is, should be trusted and we should know where it comes from. So what this series is also going to argue is that a monetary revolution will unfold through a slow devolution of money, as the loosest forms of money, like derivatives and then debts, bonds and currencies, start to jam up and collapse. Wealth will begin to trickle down towards safer and more genuine forms of money, like gold, silver and, now, Bitcoin. Money, as we've talked about, is not just one thing. It's not just cash and coins. It's also gold and silver, but also loans and promises. And even today, promises upon promises called derivatives. When a monetary system starts to unwind, it begins from the top down. The loosest forms of money, the promise that I promise that I will pay you, begin not to be met. Then the promises to pay, like loans, start to be missed, which means whole ecosystems begin to break down. Even today, in 2021, we've seen commercial and office property essentially being unable to pay much of their rent, with some places agreeing to only pay 30% rent. To solve this problem, central banks will do the only thing they can think, and to prop up the economy, they will make more money. More and more money will be created to try and solve this problem. And, as it does, more and more people will start to look for safer forms of money. The concept of a devolution of money was imagined by central banker John Exeter, who created what's called Exeter's Pyramid. This pyramid is represented by an inverted pyramid, with the riskiest forms of money at the top. But as it's an inverted pyramid with its base at the top, it is also the largest quantity of money. This loosest form of money, the derivative, is something which derives its value from something else. It's a promise that I promise to pay you in future. Its value derives from the value of something else. And this is basically as broad as it sounds, hence why it's such a huge market. Everything from futures contracts to the future value of stocks. Some have even argued that all non-US dollar backed money are derivatives, as it all derives its value from the reserve currency, the US dollar. The value of all derivatives are estimated at $1 quadrillion. Warren Buffett once called derivatives financial weapons of mass destruction. The use of derivatives in the modern economy is to some degree one of the problems in the current financial system. The foreign exchange market is basically a creation of economic inefficiency. When Nixon took America off the gold standard in 1971, 
foreign exchanges and interest rates were destabilized, and prices of marketable goods embarked upon an endless spiral of inflation. Derivatives were therefore created to hedge against risk. Foreign exchange rates can go up and can go down quite quickly. So a corporation doing business in, say, Brazil, didn't want to invest money and also have the very real possibility that the Brazilian real might lose 20% of its value over a year. So, in order to be able to make secure profits, they wanted to hedge against this happening. Somebody else agrees to pay you the reward in dollars and takes the risk of using the Brazilian real. It works as basically insurance. But by trading everything and anything that has value deriving from something else doesn't just stop at currencies. It means everything can be hedged and insured and traded. It means you get futures on options and options on futures. Once an economy recedes, people instantly try and get their money out of these neo-Ponzi schemes and into harder and more secure monies. So during any financial crisis, money pours out of derivatives and towards safer assets. Money moves downwards towards safer forms of money. The second rung down on Exeter's pyramid is private businesses and non-monetary commodities. We've seen today many small businesses going under. We've seen the collapse of oil and relative to the stock market, the lowest ever price for commodities. Money then flees stocks and shares and property, both residential and commercial. At the time of writing, the stock market and property market are holding up well. But if Exeter's pyramid is correct, things will rapidly unfold as people start needing the money they parked in unproductive and unprofitable assets. If you want safer money, people will sell on the cheap as they can't find renters or other buyers. Credit then dries up as there's a clear financial crisis and nobody wants to take risk. Money starts to flee from corporate bonds as the worrisome larger corporations in older industries look like they might start to sink. In 2021, we've seen elements of this unwinding, but not totally. It is largely the central banks, the Fed, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, and the European Central Bank, who are buying up corporate bonds to keep them from collapsing. There are currently $1.7 trillion of corporate zombie firms in the United States. These companies can't even pay back the interest on the loans they took out to survive. Once these corporations and debts start to go under, there will be pressure on listed stocks too, and formerly secure companies will look increasingly perilous. More money will flee out of the stock market and go to places people feel is safer. What could be safer than corporate bonds? Well, the next rung down on Exeter's pyramid are mortgages and government bonds. There is almost no demand for government bonds at the moment, with much of it propped up by government's own central banks. Zero, and in some cases below 0% interest rates, means many aren't tempted by putting their money into these bonds, other than those corporations 
with duties to buy government debt. Mortgages start to dry up as banks are facing liquidity worries and other loans start to dry up. Their reliance on mortgage payments to keep solvent. But if mortgage payments start to dry up, then things really get spicy. Meanwhile, there will be no demand for government debt. Governments will have to find other buyers. But retail investors will have no demand for government debt. They just want to make sure they can survive till tomorrow. If they can't, governments might start printing money to fund deficits and buy their own bonds. This is quantitative easing and it's already being implemented. Central banks buying government bonds with no real desire to force high interest rates has meant governments can borrow at below 0% interest. Nobody real would want government bonds. With the minuscule interest rates, you might as well just hold cash. Indeed, many have gone down this route, holding cash rather than government bonds. Holding cash, however, rather than government bonds is also pretty silly, as the real inflation rate in the economy is around 7% once you factor in house prices and stock market inflation. Many others have realised this too, and so have started to look towards gold and silver and Bitcoin to secure their money. What many are thinking, including me, is that gold and silver, as historic stores of value, will be joined and largely replaced by an even harder and truer store of value. The soundest money created by man will rewrite the economy in a decentralised enough manner to allow all to prosper. To me, Bitcoin is powerful enough to rewrite Exodus Pyramid from the ground up. Bitcoin is an asset far harder to manipulate than any before it, because it is built on the basis of the blockchain technology. Its entire system means to those who understand it, it is less prone to a sudden loss of trust in its system, especially when compared to our own current financial system which is propped up by governments, collapse after collapse. Bitcoin is an asset that can't be printed to suit politicians or central bankers. It is a truly independent, supply-limited, safe global asset. True money will enable a true monetary revolution. Many who say Bitcoin is not a solution to any problem do not understand the flaws in the current financial system. The first principle is that any financial system has to rely on trust. To support the dollar and the current financial system, you have to have confidence in central bankers and politicians. I don't. Yet I do trust a mathematically perfect supply-demand medium of exchange which can store value perfectly. This system has my ultimate trust because of these inherent qualities. It also happens to solve many issues and the lopsidedness of our current economy. Government money is propped up by all the mechanisms of the state. But if you counterfeit money, you'll have the police on your doorstep. But if the government does it, that's fine. 
If another country attempted to manipulate the dollar or subvert it, then you'll have sanctions put upon you, with the looming threat, always, of the US military on your doorstep. Yet Bitcoin is not backed up by such brutality as the state's monopoly on violence. It is backed up by a more fundamental force, the mathematics inherent in its cryptographic programming. This will not just be a new silver or gold standard. It represents a much bigger change in our financial system, one far bigger than we can even predict. For the first time in human history, our store of wealth and value is utterly independent from political power and political control. Now that is a revolution. This is managed because the supply and demand of Bitcoin is controlled by the programming of Bitcoin itself. While its decentralised nature means that hacking Bitcoin is essentially as silly as saying you will hack the internet. This financial revolution will be slow and gradual and it will take perhaps 10 to 20 years to see its true impact. I think we are unlikely to have a Bitcoin day the type of day when all central banks decide one day to adopt Bitcoin. It will take years and years of untold pressure from the public for this to happen. And slowly, rogue states like Iran and Russia will move to a Bitcoin standard to avert the US dollar. While retail investors all over the world will move more and more towards cryptos as their superior metrics means there is an incentive for all to save and invest in this new alternative financing solution. This will drive the economy once again. It will force nations to make choices. Move to Bitcoin or be left behind. The first, the first industrial revolution didn't start one day in 1760. It took 60 years from the start to the end. The digital world today is surely quicker than this, but once confidence in traditional financial arrangements are lost, a similar revolution will unfold. As the qualities of holding Bitcoin over dollars or pounds are seen by more and more, confidence in the current financial system drains away, and confidence is the only thing that matters in money at all. It is all about relative and not absolute value. Bitcoin is both the perfect store of value and a very easy currency to use. Many quote-unquote issues around Bitcoin will begin to fade away as its adoption increases. The price will stabilise as more is traded in Bitcoin itself rather than its value to other currencies. 0.1 Bitcoins will be how much something costs, not its equivalent in US dollars or Great British Pounds. The beauty is that while supply cannot be increased, Bitcoin can be divvied up into smaller and smaller units, perhaps indefinitely. This will stabilise Bitcoin's price and allow it to be used as a currency too. By this point, there might be other forms of digital currencies, and even better ones that might outcompete Bitcoin on certain elements and certain areas of financial transactions. But let us wonder what a Bitcoin standard would look like. Sending money to buy things might not be what Bitcoin is used much for in the future, as large corporations, central banks and treasuries 
and wealthy individuals will hold most of it. But as people will want to be paid in Bitcoin, it will revalue much of the economy towards the individual and increase decentralization of the economy, rather than leading to centralization and monopolization. Other cryptos might outcompete Bitcoin in certain areas. But Bitcoin's first mover advantage and the simplicity of its limited supply means that Bitcoin will always hold value. Value that is inherently deflationary. And that is what is so interesting about Bitcoin. Every other major currency is inflationary. E.g. more of it can be made or found. Government money can be printed by governments at will. The currency value artificially inflates. Just as if you had a currency based on seashells, which might be rare on one beach, but if you go to the next beach and find more seashells, your purchasing power of the seashells will massively alter. Bitcoin has no such problems. I can tell you exactly how many Bitcoins there will ever be. 21 million. As Bitcoin's market cap increases, simply holding or hodling will increase your purchasing power. It will pay to be frugal. Not like in today's monetary society where consumption drives spending, not investment. Max Weber's concept of the Protestant work ethic, where hard work, investment in yourself, and long-term thinking will once again be rewarded. Hard work, frugal living within your means, low debt levels, or debt only used to fund productive enterprises like new businesses rather than consumer spending will be encouraged in this new monetary order. A deflationary currency does not mean there will be a general cash crunch, as people hoard Bitcoin. It will simply mean that if you spend Bitcoin, you will be spending on something worthwhile to you, or investing it into maybe a business, which you believe will provide a better rate of return than simply hodling. Bitcoin will be the first true free market currency. Capital will not be allocated to where it is politically important. That means no more bank bailouts. Capital will be about being sent to where it is most efficient. This will drive a capitalist renaissance, the likes of which we've never seen before. True capitalism has never been tried before. The lack of secure and reliable money has always proved something of an inhibitor to true capitalism. But even with imperfect currencies, Wherever capitalism has been tried, it has flourished even in the strangest places. It is possible to destroy capital. The Allied bombing of Germany caused much damage. But capital isn't just in buildings. Capital survives in people. Germany was rebuilt almost overnight, as human capital poured into the rebuilding process. Capital can often be directed into the wrong places but it is really lost in absolute. Capital has a way of finding itself towards where it is safest. Once trust in one financial system is lost, nobody will look back. Seashells used to be stores of value, no more. In China, silk was once a payment and a store of value, no more. The Greek drachma used to be an international currency, 
used by traders and merchants, but today no longer. Then capital moved to the Roman denarii, the Byzantine soldiers, then the Arab dinar and the Venetian ducat. The stability of the Florentine florin led to the European Renaissance, but it was overtaken in the 17th century by the Dutch Gilder, which built a capitalist powerhouse. But then, this was taken over by the French Franc, which was built on the power of the French army. The French were defeated in 1815, leading to the pound sterling overtaking the franc as the currency of the world. Today, we have the US dollar, where monetary stability was down to the confidence in the United States' government and military. Its military has always helped force the faith in the currency. In 2021, the dollar looks to be in permanent decline. However, no other government-issued currency is seemingly competing to take over from the US dollar. Nobody is seriously contemplating moving to the Chinese Yuan as the world's reserve currency. Fed continuing to pump out QE money means many, and increasingly many businesses, are looking for an alternative reserve currency to replace the dollar, and they are concluding that Bitcoin is the answer. So, who am I to do this podcast on Bitcoin? Well, I do run another podcast called 100 Greatest Inventions, a fairly arbitrary list of what I consider to be the greatest inventions of all time, of which money is sure to be relatively high up. Doing this series has given me a pretty good understanding of not only new inventions, but how they take hold, how they change the world, and why they do so. The most obvious reason technology changes is because they are replaced by something that is better than it. A Bitcoin standard would be a far better solution for all than continuing with fiat. That can surely be beyond doubt. Bitcoin will succeed because it suits the new modern world, and it fits in with the world around us. It's a digital currency for a digital age. But we can go even deeper than that. The internet and computing revolutions were based on the work of cyber libertarians. Those acid heads in the 1960s who worked on developing computer networks and were obsessed with the decentralization process and information passing together in interconnected computer networks without government or even university control. It was the perfect mix of hippie spirit, Americana and a Thomas Jefferson style distrust of governments and political power. The internet has since been co-opted to some degree by hugely powerful corporations trying to undermine these cyber-libertarian principles as best they can. But the internet cannot be taken over. It is not the printing press, the television or the radio. It is far more decentralised than that. This helps to also explain why Bitcoin cannot be stopped. The cyber-libertarians tend to be ahead of the curve when it comes to most computing revolutions, and Bitcoin is no different. The principles of a free spread of information away from government power and towards the individual is a slow and gradual process. But these principles are best encapsulated by Bitcoin. 
All Bitcoin is, is the transfer of information. And there has never been a quicker, more decentralized way than Bitcoin. All Bitcoin is, is the transfer of information. And there has never been a quicker, more decentralized way than doing this digitally. Why should money not be the same? Bitcoin and the blockchain may be seen as even bigger revolutions in our lives than the internet. The free spread of information is a powerful concept, but the free spread and complete independence of the most important thing in society, the very money we use, is revolutionary. The digital revolution we are all living through is changing our lives constantly. So it's only logical it will overturn everything in our society. Bitcoin is the culmination of Alan Turing's first pioneering work into cryptography and computing. That might seem like a long time ago, but it took nearly 50 years from the Watt engine to get to the steam locomotive. The steam locomotive was the culmination of dozens of small and large technical innovations, which, when put together, proved a revolution in transportation. The culmination of the digital revolution is Bitcoin, and it will be similarly as life-changing and awe-inspiring. For the first time in 5,000 years of creating money, man has the perfect currency. The history of money is a much underappreciated part of history, so I do recommend very much Niall Ferguson's The Ascent of Money. Just because Bitcoin is not made by the government, we should remember that government money has not always been issued like this. Governments have not always issued money, but it has always been somebody with power. Monetary historian Alexander Delmar argues for six major printers of money in the last 5,000 years. Coinage in temples, coinage by senators in Rome, then Caesars and emperors of Rome, then by feudal kings in medieval Europe, and then by private monetary coinage that was the result of the increased supply of monetary metals that was flowing into Europe after colonisation and plunder of the New World. But by the 17th century, money in the form of centralised gold meant that money was starting to be controlled by banks. By the 20th century, governments had overtaken the banks and took control of the money supply through central banking. Hence, they could then print money at will. Bitcoin breaks the chain of money issuance and completely alters the perception of money. Bitcoin offers limited supply, incorruptible processes, easily transactable with no middlemen. And there's the kick that makes Bitcoin even better than many people realise. This is the backbone of Bitcoin itself, the blockchain technology. This monetary revolution will be more than Bitcoin. And while the rest of the crypto ecosystem may not be fully developed and mature yet, I don't think it will be far behind. In this episode, we've talked about a lot of things, bringing together anthropology, history, economics, politics, and technology. But I want to leave the episode talking about theology. Perhaps not an area you'd expect to hear on a Bitcoin podcast. But this problem of money manipulation, currency debasement, 
and distrust of financiers was encountered back in biblical times. One of the most famous events in the New Testament is Jesus' rage at the moneylenders in the temple of Jerusalem. As relayed in Matthew chapter 21, verse 12 to 13, quote, And Jesus went into the temples of God, and cast out all of them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers, and the seats of them that sold doves, and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it into a den of thieves. Close quotes. The incident took place at the Passover, as many hundreds of thousands of Jews flocked to Jerusalem to celebrate. Many needed to change their money from the standard Greek and Roman money to Jewish and Tyrian shekels. Famously, Jesus went and saw how the money changers were shortchanging the poor. As John chapter 2 verses 13 to 16 says, quote, And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, quote, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Close quotes. The temple served as a bank where money could be loaned out to the poor. Marvin Mitch has argued it shows the temple establishment cooperating with the Jewish aristocracy to exploit the poor through debt. Jesus was a radical, but it was this incident, rather than his radicalism, that led to his death. Within a week of the incident, the Jewish establishment had given up Jesus to the Romans, and he would be crucified only a week later. Radical though he might have been, Jesus was right to complain about the financial elite's exploitation of the poor. This leads me back to Bitcoin, which amongst some inspires near religious reverence. But just remember, Bitcoin is the culmination of thousands of years of Judeo-Christian attempts to remove a pervasive centralised financial system, which keeps the poor poor and the rich rich. So, Thank you for listening to the episode. If you liked it, feel free to give it a five-star rating or leave a comment. Or perhaps, if you like the sound of my voice and want to explore my other podcast available, it's called 100 Greatest Inventions. In the next episode, we're going to start looking at the history of money.